Okay, so the reading is Genesis 1, which is page 1 in the Church Bibles and pretty much every other Bible. <laughs> so. okay. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the third day. And God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser night to rule the night, and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. And God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I've given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Well, if you're a regular at Trinity, you will know that we almost exclusively work our way through Bible books um, in order to understand God's um, word. And interestingly, um, in January, we are going to start working our way through the book of Genesis, starting with Genesis 1. And we'll be working away from Genesis 1 all the way to the end. But that's in January. Today, we're not going to be um, looking at every aspect of Genesis 1 although it would probably take more than a sermon anyhow, um, but we're just going to use it to think of a more, uh, in a more thematic way. So if you're thinking, oh, what's Genesis 1 all about? Um, come back on the 8th of January when uh, we'll be looking at that in a bit more detail. Anyway, uh, but for today, what we're going to be doing is exploring Genesis 1 in a little bit of um, anticipation for the incarnation, which we're going to think about more next week. Things will all become clear. Just a few things to mention before we do start. Um, we will have uh, question time at the end of the sermon. So once the sermon's finished, I'll open things up for questions. We normally have about time for three questions. So I mention that now so you'll be knowing it's coming up and thinking what questions you might like to ask. Another thing to mention is the sermon outlines in your service sheet, which is if, if, if it's any of use to you, then obviously use it. If not, don't worry. And then most importantly, let's ask God for his help. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this opportunity to spend time reflecting upon you, the creator, and how you brought this world into existence. And in doing so, it belongs to you. And that we're part of your creation. Therefore, we also belong to you. We pray, Lord, that we would, as we reflect on the ba this basis, this relationship that we have with you, appreciate that um, we owe you and we are debtors to you because you are the one who brings life. Amen. Well, everyone wants to know where they come from. All the way from the little boy who asks his mum to the scientist who gazes at the stars. There's a fascination with our origin. Now this isn't a recent pattern of thought. This is as old as the human race itself. Ancient civilizations 
all had their story to explain how the world began. But what is interesting is how we categorise different accounts of creation. If we think in in the terms of those accounts told by ancient civilizations, they tend to be called myths. But if we think in terms of the scientist who is an atheist, well, for some reason now, they become theories. What makes the scientist better placed to conclude that their theories are accurate, while the myths can be dismissed? After all those ancient civilizations, we're much closer to the events they wish to explain. That, of course, doesn't make them any better placed to explain it. But what we can say is this. Given every culture and civilization have asked the question, where have we come from, and attempted to answer that question, and part of their response has been to provide an account of creation, then the atheist scientist is simply one of many possible attempts. But this isn't how it's presented. When the Big Bang is spoken of, it's taught as fact. In the same way we heard gravity spoken about, or the heart pumping blood around the body. But when an alternative is presented, it goes something like this. The Christian, well, those sort of people, they believe that God created the world. Notice what this begins to achieve. Subliminally, unconsciously, we begin to hear that the Big Bang taught as a given, while big creation by God is taught as a myth. But bizarrely, some people choose to believe. When, in reality, here we have two accounts of how the world came into existence. The first whereby some means creation creates itself, while in the other we have a personal being that brings the world into existence. Having said everyone has a creation account, that doesn't mean that everyone's thinking in the same uh, say, thinking of the same thing when they speak of creation. When people think in terms of creation, they're thinking of something quite different from what the Christian has in mind. For example, when the Greek philosopher Plato describes creation, he explains how God creates out of a material. And this material is an eternal material. It's a material that's always existed. So God creates out of pre-existent material. This is very similar to the Big Bang Theory. There was already something there. There was already something present. And it was this material that led to the Big Bang. But when we think of biblical creation, we're describing something quite unique from all these other models. 
In this case, God creates out of nothing. There is no other material. God speaks, and that which is not comes into existence. What we have then is the unique contribution that Christianity makes. Unlike all those that depend upon raw material to create, God creates according to his own good purpose and is able to do so out of nothing. It follows on then that he's sovereign and doesn't depend upon anything else. Another aspect that's noticed when considering ancient civilization accounts is that creation wasn't simply intended to explain how the world came to be. And that's where it stops. But creation accounts had implications on society, how people lived. They were intended to provide order and regulation for how society was to run. This does raise the question, can the most recent accounts of creation bear such a weight? Now the Bible both talks about the universal awareness of creation and also speaks of the implications creation has for us as the created. And a helpful place to head for this is the passage we read earlier in Romans 1, 18 to 23. Briefly, it explains how God has created the whole of creation and that he has done this is plain for all to see. The magnificence of creation should cause everyone to raise their heads up and worship God because of what he's done. But instead they suppress the truth And they attribute creation to part of the creation. They worship the creation instead of the creator. Now this is the essence of idolatry. Attributing the glory that is the creator's and giving it part to part of his creation. We see this most commonly in our age when in wonder people say phrases like, Isn't Mother Earth incredible? Now back in Genesis 1, though it may be a little bit subtle, the absurdity of idolatry is exposed. We see it in verses 14 to 19. It says this, And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. Oh, and the stars. God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, there was morning, the fourth day. 
God creates two lights. They're not named, but we can assume they refer to the sun and the moon, since the first rules the day and the second rules the night. But what sort of rule is this? Well, they're given the role to distinguish day and night. When it's day, the greater light rules. When it's night, a lesser brightness comes from the second light. And of most significance, we cannot make the mistake of believing these lights are in any way divine beings because they are created. These lights were made by God. They are part of creation. They are created in the same way as every other aspect of the world. Every aspect that's come before and every aspect that will be created afterwards. It means it would be a mistake to worship the sun or the moon because the same mistake would be being made as that outlined in Romans 1. Robbing God of his glory, giving it to part of his creation. But also, it means, if the sun and moon are not deities, and therefore they don't behave according to their own whims, but rather they're part of God's creation, and it's God who's given them specific roles, then we can expect the sun and the moon to behave and obey the same laws as every other piece of earthly matter. Notice how this leaves the door wide open for scientific investigation. When the sun and moon are believed to be divine, well, their actions are unpredictable. But when the sun and moon are recognised to be part of God's creation, the scientists can accurately assume that they will hold the same consistency found in the rest of God's creation. Now as we conclude this morning's sermon, I'd like to consider time. The question that's asked of God is, why didn't God create the world in an instant? Instead, he takes time to create the world. He does it over six days, resting on the seventh. Does this imply some shortcoming or failure in God that he should take time to create? But this way of thinking is in danger of making the same mistake as the deist. This is where God is like a clockmaker who creates the earth and sets it running. He then takes a step back and leaves it to run independently of him. But instead, Genesis 1 provides us with a picture of one who creates, and part of what he creates is time. Then having created time, he takes time to order his creation. He spends time to develop his creation. And he allows time for his purpose to unfold. So what we have is 
though the creator himself is outside of time, he becomes involved in his creation at a temporal level. Now this is going to be the basis for what we'll consider next week. But for now, this has a further implication for our consideration of science. If the scientist wishes to observe creation, and from his observations of creation, conclude how the world came into existence, well, immediately he has a problem. Because the divine act of God, when he initiates his creation of the universe, is not restricted to the before and after of the finite timescale. Which means natural science has no way of observing the point prior to the world coming into existence. Because that first act of creation by God was outside of time. It has to be outside of time because part of God's creation is time. So if the scientist observes creation, the scientist observes what is confined to time. And no matter how far he delves, he'll never be able to observe that which was outside of time. The scientist's observations are always going to be bound by time. But our God is outside of time. And this means not only the point of creation is outside the scope of the scientist's exploration, but neither can God be peered at through a microscope, tested upon, or dissected. God is unknowable by scientific means. But this leaves another potential problem. Are we in danger of the God who is timeless becoming unknowable? And we're going to re leave it there because that's what we're going to explore next week. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, as our Creator, we depend upon you for our existence, the air that we breathe, the food that we eat, the rain that falls and the sun that shines. As we reflect on the world that we live in and see the sophistication and complexity of it, might we this Christmas remind ourselves of who you are and what you're like, that you are the transcendent God who brings into existence that which does not exist. And you do so simply by saying the word. And throughout history, you've continued to sustain your world, bringing the seasons, providing the rain, the sun, and keeping us alive. We thank you, Lord, that your work does not stop there, but you are also our Redeemer.
Amen. Well, I mentioned uh, at the start that there'd be an opportunity to ask questions uh, related to what we've been thinking about this morning. So I hope it was uh, straightforward enough and you followed what was said. We've already got our first question, so... Uh, yes, Theo, you have a question. Oh, so comment, not question. Excellent. So Theo's just said, just for the recording, and for those of you who didn't hear, uh, if the world was created by explosion, that's slightly unusual because explosions have a tendency to destroy things, not to build things. Thank you, Theo. Any other questions or comments? Uh, yes, Hannah. Interesting. Good question. Okay. Uh, yeah, no, we won't be discuss that next week. Um, so I tell you what, who's doing, I wonder who's doing Genesis 1. You, I'm doing it. No, I can't get out of it then, can I? <laughs> um, yeah, so just to repeat the question for the recording. So how do we think about days? So in Genesis 1, we've got, um, and there was evening, there was morning, the first day, and then we have second day, Third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day. God's created in six days. Are we to think of them as literal days? Or are we to think of them as a period of time? Um, but you know, I don't really know what to say. I, I can say lots of things. Um, but let me say a few things. So, interestingly, the book that I've been reading, so I've been reading a book by Colin Gunton. I meant to look at the title, but I can't remember what the title is, because you don't take much time looking at the title. You read the book, don't you? So I can't remember what the title is, but it's a book by Colin Gunton. And he seems not that interested in the question of... Um, it, well, he's not too worried about it being a 24-hour day. So he kind of moves on from that quite quickly which was quite frustrating because it is the question, it's an obvious question to ask, and it's a good question to ask. Um, I guess, I mean, some of the things that I think are interesting is that obviously it talks in terms of there was evening, there was morning. So it would make sense if that was referring to a 24-hour day because that's how a 24-hour day works. But then that doesn't mean it's set in stone, does it? Because it could just be they're communicating a period of time calling it a day, how do you think of a day? It's a morning and evening. So I guess that doesn't necessarily fall either way. Um, you've got the people sort of present the idea that later on in um, the Ten Commandments, you've got this idea there's going to be a Sabbath rest, there's a seventh day off, so it would make sense that 
there's six days where they work and then the seventh day the rest. But again, it doesn't really mean it's not very necessarily definitive. It could just be six days and then the seventh day and it's just a pattern, a similar pattern. Um, I guess, I mean, one of the things I think, if we're saying, well, six days has to be an awful lot of time in order to squeeze evolution into Genesis 1, then I'm, I'm much more uncomfortable with that because, well, there's, I think there's a couple of things to say. The first is Genesis 1 is telling us what God is like and how he created the world. Um, and it's making, first and foremost, it's making theological points about who God is. God's the creator. Everything that exists, exists because he brought it in, into existence. How did he create the world? He did it by speaking. Um, what did, how did he evaluate the world? Uh, I'm giving away Genesis 1 sermon. Uh, how did he evaluate the world? He evaluated his creation as good. It was according to his good purpose. So there's a lot of theological stuff there. Obviously, when we get to something like evolution, which is a re relatively recent, um, it's sort of exploring um, how animals have changed and become different over time, or even further, you know, kind of how single cell organisms become multiple organisms. They're just not talking about the same things. So I think if that's why we want days to be longer than 24 hours, I don't think that's a legitimate emphasis to put on the text. So personally, I'm kind of, in one sense, I'm kind of agnostic because I'm not too worried about whether it's a 24-hour day or not. Um, but if you pushed me, I'd probably just be like, yeah, well, let's go with a 24-hour day. <laughs> um but I, I just don't, there's nothing that makes me think this is the answer, I can give you this answer and then we can all go home satisfied or at least this is a compelling answer. Um, but I think one of the things we're trying to tease out is that the days, what is significance by the days and that's what Colin Gunton teases out is that God is engaging at a temporal level. It's not an instantaneous and the world is created, but rather day one. Well, yeah, again, let's give away some more of Genesis 1. Day one, he creates the light. Um, and then day two, is it the, the water and the land? Or, or the water, and then day three is the land. And then you get this pattern where the light's been created in day one, and then day four, the lights are created. So although the lights have been created, now the lights are created in the sky. And then you've got the uh, waters created, and then the um, the animals to fill the, or the fish to fill the seas are created. And then the land's created, and then the animals to fill the land is created. So there's an order to it and a purpose to it, but it takes time as it as it unfolds. So I think that's more the purpose of the, the days and the temporal sense nature of it 
than whether it's 24 hour or not. So I hope that's okay. Because I've just ignored your question and said something else. Uh, yep. Yeah. Okay. Nikki? Um, maybe. Um, so the question is, um, we talked about how ancient civilizations, civilizations, views of creation, um, weren't just about how God created the world, but also how that has implications for how we're to live in the world. And then can I explain a bit more about that? Yeah, so Colin Gunter makes a passing fleeting comment on it. Um, so I, th I think... If you go back to ancient civilizations, which I don't know these, I mean, I think I've read a couple of their sort of things, but I guess the idea is, is creation has ethical implications. So um, we can see, obviously, in, in Genesis 1, where God creates the world, he says it's very good. He then gives humanity the role to rule over creation. And then um, there's the creation order put in place. And then the expectation that they'll obviously follow that expect, um, order. Now, that's not unique to Christian creation. Um, but all ancient civilizations had this connection um, in that there was an expectation that their creation story meant and therefore live in this way sort of thing. Um, so that's kind of what's going on. Is there another? Yes, Katie. Yeah, good. Yeah, so just to repeat the question for the recording. So as uh, a Christian parent, we're sending our kids out to school and they're going to be in that context where they're told that the Big Bang is just fact and then they s talk about Christianity and that, but it's like, oh, Christians believe this, Christians believe that. Um, and then how do we help them kind of put all that together uh, without obviously undermining the teachers? Um, I think there's, I mean, there's a couple of basic things that we've got to get under our belt before we do anything else. And that's, I think one of the most important things we find as parents is just to make Sunday a priority. So one of the things we've said is that basically if the boys get invited to a party on Saturday, as long as we've got our plans, we're going to the party. But if the boys get invited to a party on Sunday, um, 
then, well, it's Sunday, so we just can't go to the party because we're going to church. Ironically, uh, I'm taking um, Theo to a party this afternoon, but it's a, it's a quiet Sunday, but the point still stands. <laughs> um, so the idea, you know, so I, I think, I mean, Henry and Theo and Archie, I don't know, you know, they probably missed a day of church when they'd been ill, um, but pretty much from the point that they were born, they were here every week. So they've just got this thing of, what do we do on a Sunday? We go to church. Um, so now, now you might be thinking, well, I'm not answering the question here, but it's interesting because that's a, a subtle level of how do my parents think about church? Well, it's just what we do. So it, it starts to, it, it provides a context for everything else that's going to follow on afterwards. Um, and then... And then there's you know, simple things. Well, it's interesting. I, I do think with children, actually, it's, you're playing a, the long game. And one of the first things to do is just to get them familiar with the Bible stories. You know, you're not teaching them theological implications because they just can't understand the concepts. You're just teaching them the Bible readings to get them a reasonable, I say reasonable children's Bible because none of them are great, but just get them used to the material so they know who Abraham is and who, who this is and who David is and all that sort of stuff. Um, and then after that, as they get a bit older, it's about having authentic conversations with them. You know, in terms of if they ask a question, then, right, well, okay, it's time to engage with that question. Everything else gets put down and that question is talked about. Um, and, you know, never fob them off. So that if they come back and they say, oh, we've been learning about dinosaurs, hang on a minute, and the world's six billion years old, um, I must admit, when, when they do that, I'm thinking, okay, right, where do we start? Um, but um, but it's, there's a, yeah, so I, th- I mean, I think a lot of the things, w- w- we've had a lot of fun with the concept of idolatry, and that's, I think, been quite helpful uh, for the boys. So um, making the distinction between inanimate objects that people worship and the God who's created who brings into things into existence. I think for the boys, it is a concept they can understand quite early doors, even quite when I think uh, Theo and Henry were sort of three-ish and four-ish, they kind of had got that idea that actually, um, you know, if something's inanimate, it can't do anything. So why worship it? And that's a silly thing to do, because it's powerless. It can't, you know, it's, it's got ears but can't ears, hear and eyes but can't see. Uh, it's got a mouth but can't speak, and if you push it over, it falls over, and it can't get itself back up. In fact, you've got to carry it anywhere you need to take it. Um, whereas the God who speaks and brings things into existence. So it's a slow process, and it's a lot about putting the foundation in at the start and keeping that foundation going. Um, but then ultimately, yeah, when they come home and have that, ask that question, um, you've got something to refer back to. Um, because the foundation has been placed. I hope that's all right. We can keep. It's the sort of thing that's worth keep talking about. Um, but that's our approach. Okay, let's uh, stop there um, because we've had three and a comment. Uh, we'll pick this up again next week, and I'm going to give you a bit of a teaser um, in the reflection. So um, we'll mention that in a minute. We're going to stand to sing. Oh, come, all ye faithful. <laughs>